Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Today, I'm happy to have a returning guest with me. He's an expert in obstetrics, gynecology, and maternal fetal medicine, and high-risk pregnancies. He's double board certified with many rigorous trainings from around the world and has received numerous top doctor awards. He has multiple practice locations with a main office located in the Cedars-Sinai Medical Towers right here in Los Angeles. Dr. Stephen Rad, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's always an honor and privilege to be on the podcast and to catch up with you and to see you. And hello to all our guests. Hashtag mutual. (laughs) It's always great to see you. I always learn so much when we chat. And uh, anybody who wants to check out one of the other very popular podcasts that we did, a very formative podcast that we did together, the episode is on gestational diabetes. Today, we're going to talk about cerclage. And just by way of a little background, over time, we've had patients have this medical procedure during pregnancy called having a cerclage put in. And recently, I had Brianna Henry. You can go check out her episode. She was particularly concerned about having a cerclage put in and taken out. And she asked me all these questions, and I had no idea. But I said, I know who to ask. And so here we have Dr. Stephen Brad. All right, let's start at the beginning, Doc. What is a cervical cerclage? Well, first of all, regarding your introduction, actually it's a timely topic for me too, because I just removed the cerclage I placed last year, this past uh, Sunday. And I just had a patient this morning that needed to go to the hospital and needed a rescue or emergency cerclage. So a cerclage, what is a cervical cerclage? So a cerclage is a procedure in which you suture the cervix and you essentially close the cervix and reinforce the cervix and increase its tensile strength to prevent from opening and in turn preventing adverse events like pregnancy loss or the prolapsing of the fetal membranes through the cervix into the vagina, infection, preterm birth. Okay, um, let's back up just a second. So first of all, is cerclage, is there ever a reason to do it outside of pregnancy? Um, yes. Yeah. So there is a type of cerclage called a trans-abdominal cerclage that's done sometimes pre-pregnancy, but there is not a reason to do a cerclage other than for preventing pregnancy a poor outcomes of pregnancy. Okay, so anatomically, the cervix is located at the bottom of the uterus? Yeah, so I think we can back up and explain that very carefully. So the cervix is the opening of the uterus, so the lower part of the uterus at the top of the vagina, depending on which direction you want to think of it from. And some people would call it like the mouth of the uterus. It's through which if you have a vaginal delivery where a baby is born, when we check if you're dilated, for example, they're checking to see if your cervix is dilated. And the goal is to get to 10 centimeters during a vaginal birth. So it's the birth canal through which babies are delivered. And you don't want, the purpose of the cerclage is to prevent that from opening early. So if the cervix were to open early, then you can lose the pregnancy or the bag of water can prolapse out of the uterus into the vagina Okay, so so that's the doorway between the uterus and the birth canal, the vaginal canal, and it's supposed to be closed and not let anything in or out during pregnancy. Yes, so none of the 
We're not allowed to let the bag out, let the baby out, and also helps prevent infection. Okay, great. The cervix opens to 10 centimeters, you said, just for a visual, because I'm not on the centimeter system. <laughs> You're holding it up, nobody <laughs> can see. But uh, Cheerio is about one centimeter, a Ritz cracker is somewhere around three centimeters. The diameter of a can of soda is about seven centimeters, and uh, bagel is 10 centimeters, which is why whenever I'm out of birth now, I get hungry for carbohydrates. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> My kids once called me I'm like, Dad, are you coming home soon? I'm like, yeah, I'm somewhere between a Ritz cracker and a can of soda. <laughs> okay, so that uh, cervix has to stay closed. It's circular the way it opens up. And why would you stitch it closed? Like, what would be an indication that it needs to be sutured? You know, to answer your question, really, you're asking what are the indications for a cervical cerclage? And Basically, there are three basic categories women who would need a cerclage fall into. Either they would need a history-indicated cerclage, and that's when you have a history of one or more previous second trimester pregnancy losses related to cervical insufficiency. And so cervical insufficiency is when you have painless cervical dilation. It's when your cervix opens up without you even feeling it. So there's no bleeding or there's no labor what we call placental abruption, there's no reason. The cervix just opens up on its own. You don't feel it until it's too late. And you essentially lose the pregnancy. Typically happens in the second trimester, somewhere between like 14 and 24 weeks. And so women in this group who unfortunately have a pregnancy loss due to cervical insufficiency would require a history-indicated cerclage. And for all future pregnancies, they would require a cerclage. So if you have a history of cervical insufficiency or you previously had a cerclage due to cervical insufficiency, then you would need a cerclage in the future. So that's one kind of group of women who need cerclage. The second one is a physical exam. That's if you have this cervical insufficiency or painless cervical dilation, and you're lucky enough that it was cut during your pregnancy and not historically indicated. So unfortunately, a lot of women have to have a loss first, an episode of cervical insufficiency and lose a pregnancy before they know they need to have cerclages in the future. But if you're lucky enough that for whatever reason, either because of an ultrasound prompted your doctor or you had some spotting or didn't feel right or some pressure, then you do a physical exam and you notice the cervix is dilated then you would have a physical exam indicated cerclage. It's sometimes called a rescue cerclage. And then the third type of group is an ultrasound indicated cerclage. And that's in women who have a history of a prior preterm birth, generally less than 34, less than 36 weeks. And they're followed in their future pregnancy with uh, monitoring of their cervix length every two weeks, starting at 16 weeks. And when you know that the cervix for those women are shorting, we usually use a cutoff of 25 millimeters before 24 weeks of gestation, then they would be a candidate for a cerclage as well. So those are the kind of three categories, okay. history indicated, physical exam, and ultrasound indicated. So the third one, you're saying this is not their first pregnancy, and in a previous pregnancy, they had a healthy baby perhaps, but just early. Correct. Exactly. Early. It's okay. A lot of people don't know that. You don't have to have just cervical surgery. You could have simply had a preterm birth in a previous pregnancy, and your future pregnancy is at risk for short cervix, 
So we're cut off of two, 25 millimeters or 2.5 centimeters. And you're also a candidate for a cerclage in that situation. Okay. When you talk about the cervix shortening, what does that mean? Great question. So back to what the cervix is in the mouth, the cervix and dilation. So you talked about the cervix as um, different kinds of foods or the canicles. I think of a <laughs> cervix as a hot dog. Okay. Every time I do an ultrasound, I think of the cervix as a hot dog. So for me, the cervix is a long kind of tunnel through which the middle of it opens up. Prior to it opening up, this hot dog melts, so to speak, or effaces, as it's called, and shortens before it dilates. So before the canal opens and dilates, and we get into the dilation that we were talking about, the first change is for the cervix to shorten or efface or melt from being like this long hot dog into basically as thin as paper thin. Oh, really thin. So there's different degrees of effacement and shortening, and you don't want it to get that far. So that's the way I think of what a short cervix is. Your cervix should be long and thick, literally like a hot dog. And as it's shortening, if you're having a short cervix issue, it's getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And that's so you see like that on Cheeto, ultrasound? You know, like into like a Cheeto puff size. <laughs> oh, Cheeto puff. So you, you see that on ultrasound? Yeah, and you can see it on ultrasound. You can see it shortening, and before it gets too short is when you would do the cerclage. The long, healthy cervix, the full-size hot dog, how big is that? Typically, I would say at least like three to four centimeters long. Okay, and then your cutoff is if it falls under 2.5. Yeah, if it's a, someone who had a previous preterm birth, we use 2.5. In a patient that doesn't have that, and you know, usually you'll use like a cutoff of two or one and a half centimeters in case you want to do what's called a rescue or you start thinking about an exam indicated cerclage and someone who doesn't necessarily have a history. But yeah, so for someone who has a history, we use 2.5 as a cutoff. Okay. And, then and normally it should be three to four, more than four centimeters. Yeah. You're talking about like one of those mini hound dogs now. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so just, because there's a lot of different terminology and numbers here. The food that I talked about is when the cervix dilates, when it opens up. But we're talking about things that happen before that now, which is the shortening of the cervix and then the thinning of the cervix. And the Correct. shortening is measured in either millimeters or centimeters. So normally about 40 millimeters or four centimeters. And then if it gets under 2.5 centimeters, which is 25 millimeters, then we start to get concerned. And then the okay. effacement is uh, different. That's just measured on a scale of zero to hundred percent, how soft the cervix is, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that's a lot of good information already. Oddly hungry for dinner, but okay. What are the risks? I mean, you're talking about the risk of not putting in a cerclage being that either the bag of water, the membranes can prolapse, uh, which just really means come through the cervix into the birth canal, or the baby can come through, in which case uh, at that stage of pregnancy is, becomes a pregnancy loss. So those are some pretty big risks of not doing the cerclage. What are the risks of doing it? Um, I love doing these podcasts with you because it's, you're so smart and I, I love listening to you and you explain things so well. Oh, thank yes, you. Everything you said is correct. When you're weighing the risks and benefits, 
the risks of not doing it are loss of the pregnancy, essentially. The risks of doing a cerclage, depending on how long and what the cervix, if the cervix is already dilated or if it's open or if it's closed and how long it is, you are placing a suture with a needle through the cervix. And if the cervix is already dilated or open, you know, we'll talk later on the technique of cerclage, but you're trying to put the cerclage as high as possible, close to the top of the cervix or the bottom of the uterus, the internal off, which is the beginning of the cervix or the bottom of the uterus. And you can break the bag of water if your needle goes through the bag of water and pops it. Oh, wow. Are you um, guided by ultrasound? Some people do, some people don't. Every cerclage I do, I do it with under ultrasound guidance so that I can see, you know, where we're placing the needle. And we're very careful to see how close the bag of water is to where we're placing our suture. Mm-hmm. So that's one risk. You can get into the bladder. The bladder is at the top of the uterus and the top of the cervix. So you want to make sure that you know where the bladder line is and there's different techniques, which we can talk about to understand and know where the bladder is. So you don't by mistake puncture the bladder. Is the bladder in front of that anatomy? If you think of the cervix as a clock or the hot dog as a clock, the cervix is basically essentially from 10 p.m. till about, you know, 1 or 2 p.m. at the top of the cervix. Okay. The same way, you know, everyone's goal is to put their cerclage as high as possible. And the same way you, by breaking the bag of water, you can also go too high that you get into the bladder because it's literally attached to the cervix. It's almost. Uh, the distinction between the cervix and the bladder, it's just continuous. So you have to be really careful and know your anatomy in order to avoid getting into the bladder. And likewise, depending on the type of cerclage and how far back you go around six o'clock on the bottom, when you're placing your uh, stitch, you can also get into the rectum. So you want to make sure you don't damage any adjacent organs, namely the bladder and, and the rectum. And of course, the vagina is all around you. You can cause bleeding anytime you put in a needle. There's definitely bleeding. Usually, fortunately, the bleeding stops pretty quickly once you're done. And you can also cause an infection. So the cerclage, while you sterilize the vagina and the cervix, you are putting a foreign body into the cervix and you're leaving it there for the duration of the pregnancy, sometimes even after. And this foreign body can be a site for infection. Or you can cause an infection to go up into the uterus that's not already there. So those are things. Are infection, breaking the bag of water, bleeding, adjacent organ injury. And all of these things can also themselves lead to pregnancy loss and preterm birth. So okay. you have to carefully pick your candidate, pick who you're going to do a cerclage on and not do cerclages on people that it's not necessary for and also do your technique carefully. So always weigh the risks and benefits. And of course, we talked about the risk of not doing it, which is losing a pregnancy. So This almost sounds like when I'm watching TV late at night, which almost never happens, but if I am, and then all of a sudden a commercial comes on for a medication, let's say this medication is to help you not feel anxious. Ask your doctor for this medication. And then there's like two minutes of don't take this medication. If you're allergic to this medication, this medication may cause you to become severely depressed and commit suicide. This medication will probably cause some diarrhea and upset stomach and your breath will be foul for the rest of your life. But the odds of those things happening generally exactly. are Exactly. Fortunately, so, they're low, especially in someone who's experiencing cerclages. 
And if you're using ultrasound guidance and you're careful, the chance of those things happening is very low, maybe on the order of one or two percent, if even that. So and, it sounds you know, like the risk of not doing it is not just a solid, meaning a significant consequence, but a higher statistic. I mean, it's almost like a hundred. I don't ever say a hundred, but your stakes are very high of losing a pregnancy if you don't do it. Versus like a risk of like, you know, the surclage risk is uh, like 1%. Right. Okay. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to learn a whole lot more about surclage. (laughs) Hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin. And I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart. Literally. Omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking all about surclage with Dr. Stephen Rad. Okay, we talked about what a surclage is. We got a lot of visuals on what the anatomy of the uh, cervix is, and then why somebody would get a surclage, what are the risks of getting it and not getting it. Now, there are different types of surclage. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there are basically three kinds of surclages. Two of them are transvaginal or vaginal cerclages, and the third kind is transabdominal. The majority of cerclages are placed by the transvaginal approach. The transabdominal approach is more invasive, and it's either done laparoscopically or robotically, or you literally have to do like an incision, a fan incision, like a C-section. And I'll talk about the abdominal really quickly first. The abdominal cerclage allows for higher placement of the cerclage because you're getting literally at the top of the cervix at the internal os, which is the ideal place to place a cerclage as high as possible, right? Uh, Where the uterus and cervix meet. So the transabdominal approach is reserved for women who have had previously transvaginal cerclage and was unsuccessful and unfortunately did not work. And they, despite having a, a transvaginal cerclage placed even early on, and we'll talk about timing too, still had a pregnancy loss and a, the transvaginal cerclage didn't work once or, or multiple times, then we would offer a transabdominal cerclage to those women. The transabdominal cerclage, there are not many OBGYNs in the country who are knowledgeable and skilled in placing a transabdominal cerclage. And so usually they're referred to a surgeon in a different city or a different state even in order to get their transabdominal cerclage. So this is not a readily available cerclage. Fortunately, in California, in the Los Angeles and Southern California area, we have some providers that are able to do it. Again, it can be done laparoscopically, robotically, 
or through an abdominal incision. Is it also removed abdominally or can it be removed vaginally? So the interesting thing about transabdominal cerclages is that they're essentially permanent. Most people, if not all, will leave it in forever. It, it doesn't do anything. So that's a little um, hard to picture because the whole point of it seems to be to stitch the cervix closed. How does the baby get out? You would need a C-section usually, and you leave the cerclage there for future use. Too. Oh, so it's always so a cesarean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Now it makes sense. With the vaginal, you can remove the cerclage and have a vaginal delivery. Okay. With the transabdominal one, we just leave it in forever. And because it's such a hard thing to do, it's not a lot of people do, and you leave it there for future use. So with regards to the more common cerclages um, that we're used to are the vaginal ones. There's two kinds. There's the McDonald's cerclage, which is the most common, and the Sherodkar cerclage. Both of these cerclages are placed vaginally. The McDonald's cerclage is when you place a suture around the cervix, uh, what we call in a purse string manner, circumferentially. So you start, you know, around the clock or on the hot dog at the top, around 12 o'clock, and usually go counterclockwise till about 10 or 9 o'clock, and then throw one stitch there, and then you do another, the next throw about 9 o'clock to about 6 or 7 o'clock. And you go around the cervix about usually about four, maybe five times. And then you're back at 12 o'clock and you tie the suture or the cerclage suture at the top at 12 o'clock. And by going in and out like this four or five times, you create what's called a purse string. Some women have these purses where you like pull it up. Oh, yeah. And everything bunches together. Yeah, everything bunches up. So you're like, exactly. Everything bunches up in this, exactly. You shut the cervix closed and you tie it at 12 o'clock. So that's the most common kind, is called. that's called a McDonald's cerclage. The second type of vaginal cerclage is called a Sherodkar cerclage. And the Sherodkar cerclage is placed pretty similarly around circumferentially around the cervix. But the difference with that is the surgeon will dissect or remove the bladder at the top at 12 o'clock and the rectum posteriorly at six o'clock will dissect the bladder and rectum off of the cervix so that they can get a little bit higher than you can with a McDonald's cerclage. Okay, uh, that sounds like if I don't know anything about medicine, I'm just listening to talk, especially if I have a cervix. That sounds intense. It is a little bit more invasive. When you say dissect, what does that mean when you dissect the uterus so, and bladder? The cervix and bladder, like we said, are closely opposed and they're kind of, the tissue is continuous. So dissect means you find the separation between the bladder and the cervix around 12 o'clock and you carefully separate and undermine the tissue under the bladder and separate the bladder and the cervix from each other. Okay, so they're not really connected other than the fact that they're very tight neighbors. Correct. And then they get so tight as neighbors that it's like, I don't know where you end and I begin. And then you guys go in there and you find where the separation is and just gently move them apart from each other. Move them apart, scoot them apart from each other. And then that's where you place in this new you know, separation area you created, you place your Sherodkar cerclage. The purpose of doing that is that you can get a little bit closer. So with the McDonald's one, you're not doing any dissection. It's going in and putting in your suture around right below where the bladder ends 
And with the shroud guard, you're moving the bladder and the rectum a little bit away, a little bit higher up so that you can put your stitch a little bit higher up, closer to the top of the cervix. First of all, that sounds a lot better than dissecting. But does that change the function at all of the bladder and rectum? No, they heal nicely. And it's just like the edge of it. It's not, you're not getting into the organ, just the outside wall of them. You're kind of separating and it doesn't affect them at all. Okay. Uh, that's very helpful. You know, and the reason to do one or the other, just that's what I was part of it is, at. yeah, part of it is how you were trained. If you are trained in the McDonald's approach versus the Sherrod car, I would say it's probably one of the biggest differences of who puts which kind. And in theory, if you do the Sherrod car, you can get a little bit higher placement than you can with the McDonald's. But the literature, body of data shows that there's not really a significant difference in the pregnancy outcomes between the two procedures. There hasn't necessarily been any like randomized trials directly comparing them, but there's been like observational studies. And uh, with the Sherrod car, they tend to be a little bit higher birth weight, newborn, some studies showed, but overall, there's no significant difference in the pregnancy outcomes. Again, I'm sure the people who do the Sherrod car versus the McDonald are more biased and they'll give you more biased twists to it, but they're pretty similar. And in general, there's not a difference in outcomes. So I think it comes out to you know how you're trained and what the surgeon feels most comfortable with. Okay, speaking um, of training, I'm just in my head trying to picture, how do you teach somebody how to do this? How do you learn? So as a resident, your goal is to see as many procedures as possible. And on your high-risk pregnancy or your gynecology rotation, you try to attend to as many of these surgeries. So like with all surgeries, you watch some and then... After your attending or professor feels comfortable, they may let you do one of the stitches. And how then, do you watch someone stitch a cervix? Like, how could you even see what's going on? Oh, so usually you need more. So one person is doing the stitching and there is an assistant who needs to help retract and show you and give you visualization. So you have to kind of move out if you're in a teaching setting and you have a resident with you, then you will have to give them room in order for them to watch. As they're trying to show you and give you room and retract for you, they're, they're watching what everything you're doing. Okay. We'll talk more about how the procedure is actually done, what the experience is like in the third segment. But um, is it nerve-wracking doing your first circlage? Oh, so that's what you know, I didn't get to say this earlier, but doing a circlage or an amniocentesis or a... CVS is one of the most kind of like a holy time and any kind of surgery, really, once you're in that position, everything time stops. Actually, time also stops when I'm doing podcasts with you. My phone's <laughs> with me and I have no idea what's going on in the outside world right now. But anyways, time kind of stops. You have two people's lives in your hands. Oh, wow. And, you know, like we said, there are some risks of procedure and you, they can lose the pregnancy while you're trying to save it. If you break the bag of water, for example. And so you are incredibly careful. And of course, in the beginning, it's very nerve wracking and you're very nervous. And after you've done several, you get more confident. And over the years, you get more confident. But it's always still a very special and holy time. And time stops. And you have two people's lives in your hands. And we don't take that responsibility lightly. And when I'm doing the circlage, we talked about, we have someone doing ultrasound watching everything we have someone retracting and 
then I take my time. I mean, I just sit there and stare at the cervix for a while. I look at the bladder. I look at the rectum. I look at the vagina. I look at all the distances I have. Anyone who knows me, I'm very slow even with ultrasound. And so I even will get a marker and mark where I'm going to put the stitches. On the cervix? Uh, yes. I have a, with a purple or black marker. It's erasable. It's their surgical markers. And I mark, you know, my four spots that I'm going to do it in after I observe for several minutes. I'm very careful that I make sure my, you know, I'm not getting into the bladder. I'm far away from the bag. And I literally mark where I'm going to go. Which ones do you do? Because you mentioned three kinds. I personally do the McDonald's surgery. That's how I was trained and I've had amazing outcomes with them. And so I have colleagues that do the Sherrod car and we have some colleagues that are few and far between it. Thankfully know how to do the abdominal one. So let's just talk about timing. The timing for the cerclage to go in and the timing if you're going to take it out for the cerclage to come out. Okay, so yeah, the timing, the history indicated ones, those are the pro, what we call the prophylactic or the prevent, you know, or based on your previous history, and those are the preventative ones, so to speak, are generally done between 12 and 13, 14 weeks. And the earlier, the better before you start getting, you know, history indicated. So these are women who have the history of cervical insufficiency and pregnancy. Well, so you don't want to wait too long till it happens to them again. And usually that happens after 16 or higher weeks. So we place it at generally 12 to 13, 14 weeks, the latest. And those are the history indicated ones. The ultrasound indicated ones, those are the women who have a history of preterm birth and you're monitoring their cervix for short cervix and ultrasound. We talked about the 2.5 centimeter cutoff. You're doing those cervical length monitoring between 16 and 24 weeks. So that's when those are usually placed. And then the exam indicated ones, that's when your cervix is dilated and sometimes even the bag is coming out a little bit and you are lucky enough that you was caught in time before you lost the pregnancy. Those are women who have cervical insufficiency going on live in front of your face who don't have a previous history yet, and you're able to try to do this exam indicated or rescue surcage. Those are generally also done between 16 and 24 weeks, because that's usually when these things happen. You don't want to do it after 24 weeks, though some people do uh, up until 28 weeks, and in some countries, even in the U.S. and some cities and some providers will do it after 24 weeks. But we generally avoid doing it after 24 weeks because after that, that's when the fetus is considered viable. And if you do get into bleeding or you cause the bag to break or cause them to go into premature delivery, sorry, preterm labor, then they can have a premature, a very preterm delivery at like, let's say 25, 26 weeks. And there's, you know, poor outcomes in the NICU in those situations. So you want to avoid that period 24 to 28 week period, though there are some providers in some countries that technically will do it later. And then after 28 weeks, you wouldn't really do a cerclage because outcomes for neonates in the NICU are much better after 28 weeks. And also then you're getting into situations that are really preterm labor, not really cervical insufficiency. Okay, so up until 24 weeks, you haven't hit the age of viability. So should the baby come through, they're not going to make it. And so there it's really important to have the surclash. Correct. And you don't want to put the patient or yourself in a situation where 
so God forbid you're doing your circlage and then something goes wrong or they or they deliver soon after and have a you know very preterm baby. Okay, and then between 24 and 28 is the gray area because those babies, they might survive birth. Correct. It's not ideal by any means and they might not survive. But then you, the risk-benefit analysis becomes more narrow because the risk of doing this circlage, even though it's a smaller risk of creating a problem, you're up against the fact that if the baby's born because of the weak cervix, then that baby might survive. So it's a bit more narrow. And then after 28 weeks, those babies generally do okay with a lot of NICU help, depending how soon, but they generally do okay. So then it makes no sense to take the risk of doing the circlage. Yeah. And then you get into like, you know, these are women are having preterm labor, not really cervical insufficiency. Circlage is not a cure for preterm labor, which often comes up as a question for some women who are in preterm labor, you do not do a circlage for that. Okay, let's take another break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the experience of what someone can expect if they're going to have a circlage put in. We'll be right back. Back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast, we're talking about surclage with Dr. Stephen Rad. Okay, we talked a lot about why someone would get a surclage, when they would get a surclage. In this segment, I want to talk about what the experience is like, but one thing we didn't talk about that we jump back on is when does the surclage come out? Yeah, absolutely. So we left off like when do we place it? So when do you remove it? It's re- generally removed at 36 weeks before you turn 37 weeks or by the time you hit 37 weeks in anticipation of labor, you want to remove the cerclage before the onset of labor because once, if you go into labor and your cervix starts shortening and effacing as we talked about and starts dilating, then you risk the cerclage stitch, which is really tightly placed and tied, ripping through or lacerating the cervix and that can cause a lot of bleeding and, and injury to your cervix. Or you can even sometimes lead, uh, there's also risk of uterine ruptures. You go into labor, you have your cerclage there and your body, you know, is going into labor and having all these contractions and the cerclage is kind of blocking things from moving the baby from coming out. You can also cause a uterine rupture though rare. So anyways, you want to remove the cerclage before you go into labor. So the latest possible before that, and so that's at 36 weeks. Okay, that's helpful information. Let's talk about the procedure from the patient point of view. Someone is told that they might need a surclage, they have a discussion, they make a decision to do it. And what happens next? Where is it done? Is it done in the hospital or in the office? So done in the hospital, you are either scheduled or if you're having a exam or ultrasound indicated surclages are generally urgent emergency procedures. So you're either going to be scheduled for your procedure based on your history, and then you have your scheduled time. You come to the hospital. If you are having an urgent or emergent surclage place, you're probably being sent directly from your OB or your high-risk OB's office directly to the hospital or the emergency room. You the, do it in the emergency room or you do it in the No, I mean, you know, you're being sent through the emergency room. Through the emergency room, yeah. Or like so as you arrive to the hospital, you're supposed to be not have anything to eat or drink, at least eight hours before. You're taken to the pre-operative area, 
consented, prepared, etc. You're taken to the operating room. The preferred type of anesthesia is a spinal or epidural. And so a lot of women are awake for their cercosh procedure and they can hear everything that's going on. Or you could be asked to be sedated as well. And it can also be done under general anesthesia, but that's a little more... Could we just talk about quickly the difference between a spinal and an epidural? Um, so the basic difference is, you know, they're placed a little bit different layers of the spine, so to speak. But in any case, the spinal is like a one-time shot and lasts anywhere about like two to three hours. An epidural, you place a catheter and that catheter remains kind of like an IV in your back, remains in your back until it's removed. Okay. Is there uh, a reason why somebody would choose one or the other? So an epidural, you know, you use it, for example, during labor because you can continuously infuse pain medication for mm -hmm. hours and hours. So if you're in labor or you're anticipating a very difficult C-section, then you would use an epidural. If you're doing, like in this case, a surcharge or a routine C-section, you usually will get a spinal, it's a one-time shot. It lasts for like two to three hours and should be plenty of time for your procedure to be done. Okay. And the difference between being sedated and general anesthesia? So there's general endotracheal anesthesia where you have like a tube down your throat and sedated, you're just put to sleep. You're still breathing on your own, not with the help of a machine, but you are sedated to the point that you are kind of sleeping. You don't remember the events that are happening. You don't feel it. You don't remember it. So why would somebody want to go for general? Uh, they're, they're really scared of staying awake during the procedure and they just can't handle that feeling of not feeling their legs, for example, or being kind of strapped in the band. They don't want to be part of it. And there's some anesthesiologists that prefer that and they'll go over the risks and benefits with you. Okay. All right. Does anybody just do it with a local? No, not that I know of. Too intense. I think, yeah. You need the ability to retract and take your time. And I think not anyone that I know is generally done with. Well, I mean, it makes sense the way you described, especially how you do it, just uh, kind of looking at everything, yeah. surveying what's where and the risk and of like accidentally I mean, I, hitting, accidentally I, hitting something. It makes sense to me. That would be better. You, yeah. I mean, you need anything. them to not feel anything. If they're doing right. it local, they would feel you and it wears off in the middle of your procedure. It's not good. Okay, so you don't want them to feel anything. And if you're doing local anesthesia, there's a risk of it wearing off or even them feeling the slightest bit. This is a very sensitive surgery. You don't want them either to be in pain or traumatized or anything like that. So I don't think it's, <laughs> anyone would prefer to have, uh, whether it's the patient or the surgeon would want to be doing it under local. Okay, so, so far we said no food or drink unless, you know, if it's an emergency, you've had what you've had. You go to the hospital, get prepped in an operating room. You get some kind of anesthesia, whether it's a spinal, an epidural, or some kind of lighter, deep, general sedation or anesthesia. Then what happens? Like, if they're awake, you know, and they can hear everything going on, they can't feel it, but they can hear everything going on. What's the rest of the procedure like? Yeah, so... We, you place a speculum, there's different kinds that help you look inside the vagina and find the cervix, either speculum or retractors, and that's your assistants helping you as well. You locate the cervix, you locate the bladder. Some surgeons prefer to empty the bladder and some like to keep it full. 
and if you'd like to empty it, you would use what's called the Foley catheter, and you place that through the urethra to empty the bladder. And some surgeons may just do an in-and-out catheterization where you just empty the bladder, and others may leave the Foley catheter in place for the duration of the procedure. Some people like the bladder to be full because it can help push the amniotic sac or the membrane away from the cervix where you're doing surgery. And then you can also see where that bladder cervix separation is more clearly. And some people want the bladder empty because they don't want it to be big and in the way and they pop, enter the bladder by mistake. So then you have some, before placing a stitch, will have ultrasound guidance, watching where they're putting their stitch so they don't puncture the amniotic sac, as we discussed. And you plan out where you're going to put your stitches. If you're doing the Shiradkar cerclage, at this point, you would separate the bladder and rectum from the cervix. If you're doing a McDonald's, then you would just proceed with the cerclage. And we talked about you start at 12 o'clock and go kind of clockwise. Uh, it's usually about four stitches or four, four times where you go in and out and create this purse string. And then you start it at 12 o'clock and then you end again at 12 o'clock and you're two ends of the stitch, like the purse string like of the purse, you pull on it and you very beautifully pull up on the bunch up the cervix and then you tie it with multiple knots at 12 o'clock. Prior to doing these types of procedures, have you sewn anything else? Like what? not on a person? Can you fix a teddy bear at the seam? Oh Stuff yeah. Like I mean, I'm very good at sewing. And <laughs> there's That's any sewing. holes in things or yeah. putting buttons back on. Okay. Uh, we're very okay. good at that, and you practice a lot. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. We practice selling and stitching. Yeah, I mean, earlier you asked me, you watch, and yeah, you practice on, uh, it could be a teddy bear. Some people use pieces of chicken or meat, or oh, right. they have, like, plastic models also. Um, like raw chicken, and they raw chicken doing, like, All kinds of stitches, including surclash. Okay, so they shouldn't feel anything. No, they shouldn't feel anything. By the way, at this point, some surgeons place two cerclages. We didn't talk about that. Again, the body of data has not shown any benefit in placing two. But one of the benefits uh, in terms of outcomes, one of the benefits, though, is um, sometimes you'll place your first cerclage and you may feel that you can get a little bit higher because you have a little bit of traction now in the cervix and you can use your first cerclage to pull on the cervix a little bit more and get a little bit higher. And... Some anecdotally believe placing two cerclages is stronger and they'll place two cerclages. So again, I think it's by experience and training what your preference is. But the body of data doesn't necessarily show there's a benefit to placing two. But many of your surgeons and your OBs out there might place two, so don't be surprised. I will confess, I place two cerclages. Oh, you do? You're a two cerclage kind of guy? Yes. I mean, I've done it. It's worked beautifully for me, and I've had a great outcome. So I continue to do it. But the body of data doesn't necessarily show that there's a benefit. There's, I do know that my second stitch, I get higher always than my first one. So I don't necessarily do it because I think tying it twice helps. I do it because I know I can get higher, and the higher you are, the better. I mean, that leads me to a couple of questions. Number one, is it a choice? Do you let them know the options and they pick? Yeah, I mean, I let them know beforehand that we place two because I go exactly how we're going through the podcast, except I can show them pictures. I will explain the procedure step by step to them, so especially if they're going to be awake so they know what to expect. And I tell them I'm going to place two because I also, we monitor the cerclages after and they always look on the ultrasound. We look for both cerclages and we're watching them. 
you know, somebody only come, wanted one, then it's so far, no, you know, they trust no. <laughs> that, that's the way I prefer to do it. No one personally told me, you know, they always trust us. If by that point, if you're putting someone through college, I'm sure that you've gained their trust. And I mean, they're going based on what you think. You know, I mean, of course, everyone has the option. And of course, if somebody asked me to place one, I would place one. But faster, it's easier. It, I'll be done faster. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but you talked about how there's not really a body of data showing that two is more effective. But I just wonder, does two create more opportunity for trouble, like for complications? Yeah, you have to be careful. You know, you're putting two foreign bodies. You're getting a little bit higher. But no, I mean, in terms of the data, we've not seen any. In reality, in theory, yes, there's a higher risk. Now you're doing it twice. So, you know, if you didn't get the bag the first time, you're putting yourself at risk of doing it the second time. But no, the biodata also, just like it doesn't necessarily show benefit, it has not shown necessarily harm. Additional risk. Okay. Um, when somebody's anesthesia wears off after this procedure, assuming not abdominal, since that seems to be the rare one, but from either of the vaginal circlages, what will they feel when the anesthesia wears off? Either nothing, or they may have some mild cramping or light bleeding or some vaginal discharge or brown discharge for a few hours or a day or two, but you don't really feel the circlages. Okay, so is there any, like when they go home that night, I mean, they may not feel the circlage, but I guess is there any pain from having the tissue been? Very minimal, maybe some cramping, some irritation from the procedure but generally you don't literally feel anything like in your cervix or your pelvis no i mean once it's in do we all take a deep breath and relax like not worry that the hot dog was becoming shorter depending on the situation the you know you're doing the history indicated one the cervix is nice and long and you're doing it at 12 weeks and everything is perfect versus you're doing an emergency one once it's in, you're definitely like you do take a deep breath, but there's still a possibility of it being unsuccessful. And that's also one of the risks. You know, we talk about like breaking the water and bleeding and all, but one of the risks is that a circlage doesn't work. And you have to accept that risk that it may break through and you might start going into labor, whether it's a few days later or a week later. That reminds me. So, one of the things I, as we were talking, I wrote a little note to myself to bring up is an amniocentesis. So, that is an emergency. Circlages are placed when there's already cervical dilation. And one of the possibilities is cervical insufficiency. But if there is an infection in the amniotic sac, your body may also be trying or genetic abnormality in the baby or structural abnormality in the baby, the fetus. Your body may be trying to deliver or remove this pregnancy from your body. And that's why your cervix is dilating. Though generally in those settings, you'll have contractions as well, not just like painless dilation. It's more characteristic of cervical insufficiency. But there may be an underlying infection, and that's why you're having your cervix dilating. And so in some instances, depending on how the patient presents, or some surgeons routinely will do an amniocentesis before doing an emergency cerclage to make sure there's no infection or bacteria in the amniotic sac. What if there is? Then you do not place a cerclage because you're tying in an infection. infection. That can spread to the mom. So for now, it's contained in the bag, but it'll get to the uterus and it gets to the mom's bloodstream and it could be cause sepsis and it's a very, and pretty rapidly, and it's very dangerous. So with that kind of infection in the amniotic fluid, can that pregnancy last? 
So a lot of those cases, either there was an infection beforehand and you didn't know, or you don't routinely do an amnio, or they didn't have a fever, you know, they didn't get to the mom yet. And then in a week or two, it's spread and then they'll go into labor and deliver. And you have to remove the sarcophagus for lacerate the cervix. So no, those pregnancies, generally your body will continue to want to eject. And you get cannot the treat the infection? That's what I'm wondering. The answer to that question is no. Okay. While a cerclage is in, are there restrictions on what they can do? Okay. So it's also controversial. I generally will say no intercourse for the rest of the pregnancy and no strenuous activities, no uh, heavy lifting and no strenuous exercise, especially for those emergency ones in case there is an underlying infection, they're very high risk. The cervix was already dilated and the bag was almost infected. Unfortunately, you didn't get, and you don't want to have intercourse all of a sudden. Uh, or you don't want your cerclage, this foreign body that's there to get infected. So we don't recommend intercourse. And then there's the, some physicians and surgeons who believe that, no, we knew it was a, like, especially with the history indicated ones, it was done prophylactically, not under emergent settings. The cervix is still long enclosed and they allow intercourse so there has been surveys done and we've asked around and everyone has a different practice pattern about intercourse particularly and exercise and all that so i'm on the more conservative side i say no intercourse even with Uh, the double circlage yeah the double circlage Again, it's not like no, no, super yeah. circlage. It's just because it could get higher up. Super circlage. Okay, so my question is like this. Sometimes people need the intimacy and need the exercise to stay sane, not just fit, but sane or healthy in uh, emotionally and healthy in the relationship. Are there things that they can do? I get that in your recommendation, their intercourse is out, but are other types of intimacy allowed? Are other types of exercise allowed? Yeah, honestly, Dr. Ben, like I said, there's not necessarily evidence that like exercise or even intercourse causes labor or, you know, miscarriage or pregnancy loss. And so technically they can. And, or, you know, the question that comes up, like, can you still have an orgasm and do foreplay or do other types of sexual activities or light exercise? And I think at that point, if, you know, your patient's telling you that they need this, you know, stay sane, you just go through the risks and benefits with them. And we always, you know, this moderation is always best. And we come up with a happy medium that works individually for each patient. Sounds logical. Okay. When they have the surclage out, when you take a surclage out, what's the experience like for the user, for the patient? Yes. Okay. So surclages can be removed either in your office or in the hospital. I generally prefer the hospital setting. Some people do it fine in the office. It is like, uh, you know, you just place a speculum, you have good lighting and nice retraction assistant. And you find the cerclage and you know, you know, where you kind of placed it. Usually you tie it at 12 o'clock. Occasionally you'll tie it at six o'clock. But anyways, you find your knot and you cut beside the knot. Generally, patients don't need pain medication. They don't need any kind of sedation or epidural. And it's just done pretty quickly. It takes about like five minutes or less. And they no. usually tolerate it. Well, it's like getting popster. It's not like a, and it sounds more complicated than it actually is in reality. Okay. Does that uh, not needing medication or something for the pain, does that 
both with the McDonald and the Sherrod car? Um, the Sherrod car is a little bit more difficult to remove since I don't place this Sherrod car. To be honest, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe in those cases, you may require anesthesia or sedation. Those are generally, I think, done more in the operating room. I okay. like, for my McDonald, I like to remove it in the hospital setting. They have beautiful lighting, just in a regular labor and delivery room or in the operating room, but they don't necessarily need anesthesia. And I like to have extra tools and extra help in case there's bleeding or anything. I mean, I like to be in a safe place, but it's generally a very simple procedure to remove it. Okay. So once it's removed, presumably now at 36 weeks or beyond, do all of the restrictions go away? Yes. So our goal is to get, you know, to this early, late preterm, early term period and the risk of a delivery at that point in prematurity are so low, or you're already at term or early term that yes, all your restrictions are off and you can have intercourse and do whatever you need to do. Of course, it's hard you know, to start exercising at 37 weeks, but yes, your restrictions are out, you're done. Okay. And then is the cervix changed after the procedure? Does it affect future pregnancies? Does it affect any other type of cervical health? No, so it doesn't impact, it generally does not cause any like long-term change in the shape or damage the cervix unless, you know, I guess you went into labor and there was a laceration, but in general, no. There's no long-term impact. There's no impact on fertility. There's no impact on the actual length of the, you know, outside of pregnancy, the actual cervix. Yeah. And the hot dog repairs itself. Correct. The sutures are very small and they get healed really fast. Once in a while, you leave a little, you can kind of tell where you place your circle, but generally it heals itself in your hands. Final thought here. Everything we talked about is with a singleton pregnancy. Is it different with multiples? Yes. So traditionally, cerclages were thought to not be effective in twins or higher order multiples like triplets. There is more recent data that's come out and continue to come out that shows that cerclage can be beneficial in certain settings with twins. So it's becoming a little bit more acceptable. It used to be a big no-no, and now it's more acceptable. I think, you know, if you find a patient who's having a short cervix or an exam-indicated kind of emergency situation, those are more commonly the situation when you would put it in twins or these like short, you know, cervix that you find as an, or an exam-indicated emergency rescue surprise. And there are some providers that are proficient in doing it in higher orders, multiples like triplets, I have to say that in some countries, all triplets, for example, will get a cerclage. Not in the U.S., but there are some countries that everyone with triplets get a cerclage, and there's some countries that everyone with twins get a cerclage, just routinely, believe it or not. Regardless of your history of pregnancy loss or not, you have twins and you have triplets, you all get a cerclage. So one important thing is I like to add is that uh, patients always ask, what happens when the cerclage comes out and the baby just fall out? And <laughs> no, so generally about 10% of women will deliver in the next 48 hours, but the majority will go into labor within the next two weeks. They're already, you know, you're taking out at like 36 weeks and usually they will deliver within the next two weeks. The baby doesn't just fall out once the cerclage is removed and sometimes they'll even get past their due date. It sounds like it would be an angry patient. 
I mean, just having to go through the sequence to keep the baby in and then yeah, having to worry about the baby, you know, having to induce, let's say, to get the baby Yeah, it happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Dr. Rat, do you have any final thoughts on surclage? Thank you for asking. I think we went through a lot of the important topics. One thing that I thought about as we were talking here at the end is about progesterone. A lot of patients who start out with a short cervix and end up with an emergency surclage, when your physician noticed that your cervix was getting short, you may be placed on vaginal progesterone before you progress the needed emergency surclage. And oftentimes, in those situations, the vaginal progesterone is continued concurrently with the progesterone. Concurrently with the surclage? Yes. So surclage. these are vaginal suppositories? Correct. Okay. We so talked about you... not having intercourse now, but fortunately, there doesn't seem to be an increased risk. I've never had a patient get infected because they were placing their progesterone. Oh, gotcha. So you recommend to your patients that they continue the progesterone after the surclash? Yeah, a lot of them, especially so if they were on the progesterone, then they got an emergency surclash or, you know, vaginal progesterone has been also shown to be very beneficial. Some is as effective in, as a surclash and some instances, especially in history indicated situations as well. Some providers may tell you to do both vaginal progesterone and surclage is double up because we don't know which one's going to work better or they can both work synergistically. So I just wanted to throw it out there for some women not to be surprised if their physician's recommending to do both at the same time. You may encounter that as well. Makes sense. Dr. Ed, thank you so much for joining me again on the podcast. Always a joy to talk to you. And really the information that you share is invaluable and your way of kind of putting it all together and explaining it so we can understand it is super helpful. So thanks again for being here. Where can we find you online? Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. And I hope this episode is helpful for women who have questions about surclosure have a history and unfortunately have to even have to deal with this. And for others, if they know someone that this can be helpful for, I think they can share it. You can find us probably easiest on Instagram at Dr. Steve Rad, or you can call us and you can find our number at drsteverad.com. My office is at the Cedar sinai Medical Office Towers in the East Tower, just adjacent to the hospital. All right. And Dr. Steve Rad, and we're also on Instagram with Dr. Berlin, but ours is spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-B-E-R-L-I-N. Doctor, doctor, give me the news I got on.